I swear, if you don't read it right this time, we're going to stick you back in there with the chops. Now read it right. Okay, okay. Within the depths of the strip mall of the damned lies a decrepit video store long since shuttered. Past the dusty shelves, empty save for spiders spinning their patient webs. Beyond the ancient batwing doors, guarding the sepulchre where once were hidden the perverse and heretical, a secret society assembles to scrutinize those films which are rumored to drive viewers to madness and disillusion. Draw closer, dear listener. Let your trembling ears suck upon the eldritch knowledge of <laughs> the Cinemania Society. <laughs> you guys are about as serious and scary as an episode of Scooby-Doo. I couldn't hold through it now, could you? Just, you just had to say that. I, I did the best I could. I made it to the end. We, the the story so far. While examining 1983 neo-gothic vampire sexpot bow-based lesbo-erotic shocker The Hunger from Tony Scott, Brother Methuselah has been repeatedly trying and failing to pounce upon the Conclave members to drink their precious blood. So far, no one has noticed. By this point in the movie, old Bowie is practically wrinkled away to nothing and it looks like his time is up. Even murdering an innocent music student and drinking her blood doesn't help and that's normally the go-to move for insane 80s rock megastars. Catherine Deneuve has a plan for this occasion, however. When her lovers finally break down, she just shoves them in a box up in the attic. Neat. By this point, scientist Susan Sarandon is suspicious of certain sultry sirens in her city. She should have left well enough alone, however, as Catherine Deneuve has decided to make her the new flavor of the day. Following a cursory amount of investigation, Susan Sarandon ends up in bed with Deneuve and follows a very 80s romance scene with a lot of candles and drapery, setting the tone for the entire decade to come. And I shall have my revenge! He won't. All right. Should I, should I sit down or what? <laughs> Sorry, I just lost it. Are we back? Now what am I supposed to do? I suppose we might as well finish this miserable film. All right. Following a bit of kinky, delicious sex with a smoking hot vampire siren, Susan Sarandon decides what would really top off the day is a dinner with her intensely boring and judgmental husband, Tom. He asks where she went for the afternoon, acting very incredulous at the idea that two women could hang out just talking for several hours. He's also suspicious of Sarandon's new Ankh necklace gifted to her by Miriam, wondering who gives a gift like that to someone they've only just met. This guy is both too suspicious to ignore what's going on and too dim to suspect the obvious. He should just give up at this point, but boys keep swinging. I should be concerned if she decides to rent a U-Haul the next time she goes over to visit her. <laughs> Sarandon waves off his concerns. She's European, wink wink. Sarandon smokes yet another cigarette and pokes at a huge bloody stick. Since no one has commented on this, it is presumably the sort of thing she just has regularly. We can only assume she leaves behind a trail of destruction in the bathroom like a nervous horse. She comments that she's hungry, but it just doesn't look appetizing. I mean, she'd have to be a little peckish to order a gigantic porterhouse, I suppose, but we all know what she's hungry for, and she wants it day in, day out. However, it's not all hungry glances and wistful sighs. The longer she is away from Miriam, the worse Susan Sarandon feels. She gets ill overnight, so she heads into work and everyone says hi. Her lab mates uh. test her blood because why not? 
What's the point of having a top-of-the-range monkey battle arena and laboratory if you can't make use of the facilities? Dr. Snoop L. Jackson and co. tell her it looks like she has two different strains of blood fighting for dominance. They speculate that the second blood is not human, and it appears to be stronger. <laughs> Finally realizing that something is up, Sarandon goes back to confront Miriam. Back at the apartment, Miriam tells her that they belong to each other, which is no way to begin a reasonable conversation, and also tells her about the hunger that she will not be able to satiate on her own. Sarandon is understandably pissed. She only consented to kinky elbow-licking sex, not full-on vampirism. She storms out and tries to call her husband from a phone booth. Um, kids, before cell phones, we had landlines, and if you weren't home, you had to use a public landline and just hope you didn't get herpes from the handset. <laughs> well, isn't that something about the Golga Frenchum arc full of telephone sanitizers? And then while the Bjork was gone, they died from a, a virus contracted from a dirty telephone set. So, you know, those useless people weren't all that useless. Yeah, and then yeah. Saint Nokia miraculously saved us all. She can't get a hold of her husband at work, and before she has the chance to dial another number, she's spooked by two ruffians who want to use the phone, one of whom is Willem Dafoe. Yes, that's right, Willem Dafoe shows up out of nowhere to be a seedy street person for like 10 seconds. Not even 10 seconds. I mean, he's in frame for, for I don't know how long, but it's really brief. But yeah, that's Willem Dafoe in his extra days. Not even featured extra days, they just jammed him into the frame. To be honest, it kind of looks like he just wandered onto the shoot and they kept it in the movie. Susan Sarandon is at this point about as calm as anyone who has ever been a few inches away from a ramsing Willem Dafoe can be. <laughs> you see him in the lighthouse? Boy, there's a rant. <laughs> oh, shit. That reminds me. I need to phone my uh, office supplies agent about, you know office supplies of a general medicinal nature. Tell your bug powder guy to get a goddamned email address like a normal person. If he was a normal person, he wouldn't have ended up as a bug powder guy. <sighs> I guess I have given that one. Oh, hey, yeah, it's me. I could really, really go for, uh, you know, some of that, uh, maybe some of that Alabama Cinnamon Man, and uh, I'm gonna go Creamy Douglas over here and just flat out fucking raid. <sighs> Shit, where did you come from? This is a private phone call. Look into my crazy eyes. Fall before my hypno glare. I am this close to developing the grease spasms over here. Can I help you with something? Would you like to dance around in front of a slide projector? I have brought many slides of antique steam engines. Eh? Eh? Oh. Is this like a, like a bit? You know, we could get all freaky with tiny daggers. They can really give you a nasty paper cut. Listen, I don't know who's writing your material, and it's, it's kind of a lot, but I kind of like it. Eh, uh, is that a no? It's not a maybe. You know... I'm still working on that, actually. Uh, hang on a second. Yeah, no, listen, let me call you back. I, it's an interesting offer. Let me put it that way. Let me get back to you, huh? Ooh, maybe if I tried it with 
depressing post-punk synthwave in the background. Yeah. So, I just had an interesting idea. You know, um, so this is all about vampires, and admittedly, it's not like there's any uh, real-world myths that have to do with vampires in red neon lights in their kitchens, but there are a lot of actual mythical uh, metaphors that show up in this movie. Having tried only one phone number and nothing else at all, Sarandon decides she has no choice but to go back to Miriam. The hunger is overwhelming her. Since she's really tweaking out at this point, Miriam kindly puts Sarandon in her gauzy curtain bed to continue her sexy flops wet wriggling. While uh, she did goes you say out tweaking out or twinking out? <laughs> tweaking out. <laughs> Tweaking. <laughs> I mean, because she is technically a twink at this point, right? Uh, kind of. How much of the budget do you think they spent on curtains? How much did they spend on baby oil? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry, you were saying about sexy flop sweat wriggling? Well, while the wriggling is going on, Miriam goes out to procure a gigolo on whom they can feed. While Miriam is out, Tom, the husband, comes over. It was way too easy to find a stranger's address in the 80s and tries to rescue Sarandon. He's hey, the just to of... confirm, yes, it's way too easy to find people in the 80s and 90s. When I was in London for the first time, I just called up the equivalent of 411 and got David Attenborough's phone number and fucking called him. Oh, wow. What did he say? <laughs> He was he was pretty chill. Like he sounded a little baffled, but you know, at the same time, he like I think he recognized the fact that just some random American teenager had called him, and he wasn't he wasn't mean or nasty. He just was all thank you very much. I still feel quite humiliated that I did that. As you should. How dare you baffle a national treasure? <laughs> Access to to all European celebrities that you could think of, and you called David fucking Attenborough. That that's just. That's perfect. That's so on brand for you. Well, I, I kind of wanted to grow up to be him when I was a kid. Everybody else, you know, a lot of my peers wanted to grow up to be George Lucas, but I wanted to grow up to be David Attenborough. And so you did. Well, anyway, he doesn't know what's up, but he doesn't trust Miriam. She's way too European for his taste. He's the sort of person who makes rigid eye contact with the waiter while cheap parmesan is being twisty ground onto his pasta to make sure everyone knows how cosmopolitan he's being. Sarandon suddenly goes from being limp and disoriented to fully aware and able to fight off a man twice her size. And to be honest, she has real Rosie the Riveter butch vibe right now with her sleeveless tank and sweaty biceps. And Sarandon is rocking it. She yes. looks like uh, she, she looks like she pops the caps off beers with her thumb. Hot. She goes all cross-eyed and pulls out her tiny necklace dagger, trademark. The scene cuts away, but we know what's happening. In the heat of the morning, her fascination for fashion makes it hard to be a saint in the city. <laughs> okay, after that, if you're not getting the theme, just buy a Bowie album like a normal person. When Miriam returns, she leaves the gigolo unattended in a dark room and goes to get Sarandon so they can start tonight's dinner. Before she climbs the stairs, she notices the chandelier swaying. That room's a rockin', so she doesn't go a-knockin'. Instead, she stays downstairs and has some flashbacks to ancient Egypt, presumably where she was first turned into whatever she is. A reinvigorated Sarandon comes downstairs and Miriam gives her the rundown. 
She will grow to love Miriam and develop Stockholm Syndrome, and they will live forever. What she leaves out is that the never-dying bit includes an eternity as a living corpse in Miriam's gauzy curtain attic under a layer of dove shit. Yeah, eternal life does not also mean eternal youth. Always read the small print. As the two are making out slash feeding on each other, Sarandon takes out her tiny necklace dagger trademark and stabs herself. It's a bold strategy, to be sure. The tiny four-centimeter knife causes a wound significant enough to absolutely coat Miriam in blood. Presumably, she's gobbling it down like a chunky cousin that loose at the wedding buffet. Sarandon looks dead-ish, so Miriam carries her up to the gauzy curtained attic. She's seen it all at this point, and she knows to always have a spare coffin or two lying around just in case. She goes to add Sarandon to her coffin collection, but this time something is different. There is a whole heap of a ruckus from the casket pile. The collection of love mummies is restless. It seems that the battle of the blood going on between Miriam and Susan Sarandon has taken a major turn due to the previous bloodletting. Sorry, collection of love mummies. <laughs> yeah. I was proud of that bit. <clears throat> yeah, that was good. They, they were only most. Yeah. Good. Yeah, yeah, no, well. it's, it honestly, like, she, there's a big vibe of goth girl equivalent of the suburbanite kid with too many stuffed animals here, except for they happen to be mummified corpses. Yeah, They're once again, there. this movie was ahead of its time. It predicted beanie babies. <laughs> 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 Is that what that rattling sound was? Well, the whole stiff-as-a-board horde of hoarded board scores from before chases Miriam into a hallway. They back her up against a railing that she promptly falls over. She lands on the floor with a sickening thud and begins to rapidly age. Cut to black. Once you start showing your age, it's over for you in France. Discount Ooh. Columbo comes back to the apartment to ask more questions about poor precocious Alice, the recipient of vile vampire-on-violin violence. This time, the door is answered by a real estate agent. He tells the detective that the owners moved and he was tasked with selling the place as is. Perhaps they've gone back to Europe. Oh, well, no need to investigate further. This is the 80s. Missing kids are a dime a dozen, and no one wants to call Europe to investigate potential murderers. The long-distance charges would be crazy. Can confirm. Missing kids were a dime a dozen so much so that they would put their pictures on the back of milk cartons. Yes, and for Gen Z, milk was a white substance we all used to drink before liquid cocaine became a thing you vape behind the back of the 7-Eleven. We know what you're up to. And this was, this was milk from cows, you know, before they figured out how to get it from almonds, soybeans, oats, what else? I don't know, peas. More things not to Pickles. look up on Google image search. Cut to Sarandon in her own gauzy curtained apartment with her next victim. And behind some of those tastefully flappy drapes, there is a coffin from which we can faintly hear Miriam calling out. Payback's a bitch. So if you notice, Miriam's coffin is behind a small chain link fence that looks almost identical to the one in the beginning that the not quite Robert Smith lookalike was dancing behind. Oh, hey, well, there you go. You've got your, you've got your head and tail matching, uh, matching imagery there. Well, uh, well spotted. I did not spot that. That's the kind of shit I was supposed to have been trained to spot. I'm a bad student. It's the Ouroboros just coming around, eating its own tail again. The whole wistfully looking out over the tastefully shot city aesthetic is all very Blade Runner. It's a shame she won't die. But then again, who does? Uh... <clears throat> it's a shame she won't die. But then again. We already did that bit. You're a minute late and a buck short, buddy. 
Oh, it's no use. I'm never going to achieve eternal youth. Oh, no. That train has left the station. Is that what all the weirdness has been about? You need to let it go. You're old. You're, you're just so old. <laughs> youth is wasted on the young. <laughs> He's totally going to die soon. Never going to happen to my generation. <laughs> We're going to be cybernetically enhanced. Back in your stinking hovel, you ancient he-crone. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose that's what I get for trying to murder everyone. Wait, try, trying to what? Maybe put a lock on the door to the back room sometime. Mr. Guardian of the Doors. I'll add it to the other business next time. Top of the list, promise. Hey, I'm top of the list. Fix my damn shop. It's still on there. It's in, like, the top ten issues to discuss. Well, it's ten-ish. <laughs> so that was definitely a movie. I'm not sure I get it, though. Look, it's a simple story. Story as old as time. Boy meets girl. Girl turns boy into a vampire. 300 years later, boy ages rapidly. Boy meets progeria researcher. Sleep-deprived monkey eats another monkey. Boy turns into a living corpse. Girl adds a boy to her collection of ended exes. Progeria researcher meets girl. Girl turns progeria researcher into a vampire. Girl promises researcher eternal life. Researcher overpowers girl. Girl's undead exes killer. Researcher starts her own collection of undead exes. Hey! What? Well, that's my bit. Huh. Well... What's past this prologue? <gasps> Tale as evergreen now as it was in days of old. So this was Tony Scott's contribution to the sexy gothic 80s. All right, so um, let's move to judgment. Um, Ethan, what do you have to say about this movie? Uh, to quote my friend Mara Williams, who first turned me on to this film, all vampire movies are about sex, and the very best vampire movies are about gay sex. And boy, she wasn't kidding. This movie delivers on that point in spades. It cast three of the sexiest people alive in 1983. <laughs> Hell, three of the sexiest people of the, anything in the past 50 years or more. Unapologetic bisexuals all, and has them getting down with each other in a way hot enough to establish cinematic sex tropes for decades. Gauzy drapes blowing in the breeze. Get out the jurgens, everyone. It is time for some skin. It's also one of those rare movies which is better than the book, much better in large part because the movie doesn't bother itself with all of the book's oddly sweaty scientific rationalizations for vampires. Speaking of the book, it really is one of these pot boilers straight from the paperback shelves of Thatcher-era supermarkets. This book is a combination of late 70s neo-horror, medical science fiction, and harlequin romance novel. Uh, it's bad, but not spectacularly bad enough to be anything more than mediocre. More than anything, the novel of The Hunger is extremely imitative of the top pop fiction authors of the era, Stephen King, Anne Rice, Danielle Steele, and Michael Crichton, all of whom are better writers because they committed to a single style. The pacing is rocky, and it has no fewer than eight graphic sex scenes within the first 150 pages. <laughs> sex scenes appear in every chapter, sometimes multiple times per chapter, and usually take between two and four pages apiece and occur on average every 20 pages, which is to say there is a lot of fucking in this book. 
I suspect the author was using all the sex in an attempt to hook readers with horniness so they would hang in there for his specious speculations about a secret super race of immortal hemovirus hominids that evolved alongside Homo sapiens. And remember, this is the guy who managed to bamboozle the Western world into believing in the existence of anally probing alien abductors from outer space a few years after The Hunger came out. As if a highly advanced extraterrestrial civilization would bother traveling all those light years to jam stuff up people's assholes. But, hey, I guess it only figures that the other universal constant is the propensity of intelligent life for juvenile pranks and butt stuff. Right, Zach? Oh, God. Right. Tony Scott was smart to cut all the intellectual and spiritual onanism for favor of the real thing. He knew people were just here for the sexy times, and boy, did he deliver. The hunger is a fat film for the ages. But I guess that's in keeping with his style because the next film Tony Scott went on to direct was Top Gun, which is the ultimate picture in military masturbation. Top Gun is basically Reagan-era military policy jacking itself off on screen. Uh, and it's helped to remember well, it's that... It's a recruitment commercial drawn out. Yes, it's a two-hour-long recruit. Yes, mil- Navy recruitment. Actually, military recruitment overall with shot through the zero plot. Oh, yes. my God. Yes, it's basically I don't, just... I can't, I can't hate on that movie enough. It's just F-14 porn the whole time. Um, (laughs) But it's important to remember that without Top Gun, we would never have had Michael Bay, Tony Scott's highest profile imitator. And without The Hunger, we would never have had Tony Scott in the first place. And therefore, I declare this film overwhelmingly guilty of being a source of cinemania. Next. All right, Zach, what do you have to say about this film? (sighs) That's Scrutner, Zachariah. Um... The first time I saw this film. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm barely going to remember all your names. Don't expect <laughs> me to remember everyone's titles. All right, all right, all right. All right, the first time I saw this film, I think I was eight or nine because, you know, it was the 80s. Um, I had no idea what the hell was going on. The thing with the monkeys would have freaked me out a lot more if I hadn't already accidentally seen Phantasm. Uh, so this just seemed kind of incomprehensible to me and watching it again now in my 40s it still kind of seemed incomprehensible to me i really don't get the point of the story other than you know here's this immortal chick who's been around since egyptian times cursed to live forever so she occasionally you know picks up some guy who doesn't live as forever from her but doesn't even really die so she shoves him in a box and we all are wondering what's in the box with all the other exes yeah no no kidding right so um i definitely think that this is a seminal piece of cinema in the fact that it helped spawn the whole goth movement and uh especially with the little onks that is such a goth trope but remember playing goth rhythm now with me i still have that card game (laughs) i do remember that uh but i am going to definitely say that this is a source of cinemania just from all the old problematic horny grandpas that pop out of the boxes at the end. So yes, this movie is guilty. Andy, what have you to say about this film? 
Well, I really wasn't expecting this film to hold up at all. I mean, everyone knows about the 80s goth thing that happens. We all had to live through it. But going back and looking at this movie, it basically invented all of that stuff. It was ahead of the game. And it will have been an amazing splash of fresh water in the face to the people watching it at the time. If you imagine these two directorial brothers, you had Ridley Scott obsessed with defining the future and asking questions about where we're going with Alien and Blade Runner. And then brother Tony Scott was obsessed with the now. He was looking at what's going on right now today in the clubs and in music and in what people are into and fascinated by. And he was defining what was going on at the moment. And in that way, this film was his way of saying, here we are in the 80s. This is what cinema is going to be. There will be doves. There will be gauzy drapes. There will be David Bowie. There will be sexy vampires licking each other. And the rest of us just had to live with that. He turned on the light switch of the 1980s in a big way. And the films that followed and drew from the hunger. So you're saying Blade Runner's The Look of Tomorrow and this film is The Look of Tonight. In a way, you could absolutely say that. Although I think by tonight, I mean very... yesterday, and by tomorrow, I mean technically 2016. So that was also marginally less yesterday. But uh, <laughs> the metaphor holds up. But uh, for better or worse, this film kicked off the 80s. And for anyone who's lived through the 80s, it must be absolutely castigated for doing so and thrown into the blackest, bleakest pit we have. Definitely guilty of cinemania. Absolutely 100%. Bravo. Straight off the top of the head. Well done. <laughs> Damn. Sorry. All right. Um, Andre, what do you think of this film? What have you what have you to say? What is your judgment? I mean, like, for me it was kind of like a whole different journey about like the existential crisis of aging itself and very much like an exploration of uh, our deepest like carnal fears and what we're not usually talking about in casual conversation about like, hey, we're all gonna fucking die someday, dude. And like, that was a big part of it for me, but also probably just the mindset that I approached it with. I, at least in this particular part of my life where I am unmedicated, I'll probably, I tend to take these, these kind of works, rel I wouldn't say seriously, but very much kind of, kind of on the more heavy handed side. And that's what I definitely got from it was exploring those fears. Uh, and then also just kind of learning about the history of the AIDS crisis. Um, and just the fact that, you know, we were exploring death quite a bit and a lot of stuff people didn't want to fucking talk about uh, because, you know, our, legis our, uh, our legislators, at least here in the United States, were uh, literally cheering for this, this disease that was supposedly just wiping out the dirty gays. Um, so uh, definitely exploring that, um, that despair and that just falling into ruin um, and uh, nothing but hopelessness was really what I got from this piece. And it was also beautifully shot. Like yeah. the comparisons to Blade Runner and all of that, like I just, oh, yeah. I, I, the cinematography is just incredible. Like, especially I, 
I, I've, I've worked on set uh, in the lighting department, so I might be a little bit biased, but I am just, I, I am dying to know what the setups were like for those uh, because just the way uh, that the shadows and the light were balanced was just absolutely immaculate. For some reason, the kitchen was lit red. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was the only questionable lighting decision to me, but yeah, absolutely. It, it was uh, beautifully, uh, beautifully, and, um, and beautifully shot. Yeah, you could also see just everything get, like the shadows were creeping more and more as um, uh, David Bowie's character got older and older and older. Um, I didn't notice that. Well yeah, spotted. Yeah, no, it was, it, oh my God. Like, again, just like approaching it from a more like, I guess, uh, uh, I'm trying to find a word for it, but like just a more genuine standpoint um, rather than being like, haha, vampire movie. Um, it was just, ugh, it was, it was incredible. Like, Cinemania in the best way, really diving deep into not just Cinemania, but existential breakdown. Um, and thusly, it is guilty as fuck. Oh, thank you for taking that deep dive, plunging into this film uh, as an tiny onk pendant dagger plunges into somebody's throat. Nice. Wah, wah. <laughs> and uh, Daniel, what do you think of this film? Listen, I haven't read the book either, but I have smelt the book. So I can tell you, it is dog shit. And um, Andrea, the girl one, yeah, Andrea, what's your what's your opinion on this movie? How do you judge it? That's what we're doing, right? We're still judging this thing? Yeah, it is very guilty. Um, Even though it is hard to resist the icy, sexy vampire Catherine Deneuve, I would still say it's guilty because you should never put your lovers in a box in your attic, no matter how old they get. Yeah, I think just really as, as a general rule of thumb, you shouldn't put anything alive in a box in your attic. Well, I, I wonder if she doesn't just see them as stuffed animals, like, you know, as a kid who can't bear to turn loose of their stuffed animals, but they just stick them up in the attic. I would also say that letting your small child go to a very spooky house for music lessons and not to check up on them when they don't come home, that's just bad parenting. It was the 80s. That was typical parenting. So are you saying it's guilty? It is absolutely guilty. Okay, that's everybody. So I'm, am I supposed to judge the movie now, too? Yes, you're supposed to render your judgment as well. All right. Well, I mean, this is a this is a seminal vampire goth movie. You know, it started the whole goth 80s movement. It's got David fucking Bowie, Catherine Deneuve, uh, Susan Sarandon. How can it not be great? You know, and it touches on so many issues that were poignant at the time. The lighting. The lighting is a criminal sin in this movie. Gauzy curtains. Uh, I have to agree with you there. M- muted daylight. And the, the two times that there's, maybe three times that there's light, it's either a red bulb, a blue bulb, or a screen lighting them. I'm like, who lives like this? I can understand Deneuve, maybe, you know, the vampire thing, her house. She doesn't want a lot of harsh lighting. But Tom in the kitchen has fucking red lights. What, does he live in a tanning booth or something? What is up with this? So those were some artistic choices there. The rest of it kind of tracks with the 80s. So, I mean, I guess it's guilty of being very, very 80s. I'm Personally, I love this movie. It's really a great film, but it's just 
so heavy-handed with all of the, I'm going to eat you and I'm dying and all of this. So, of course, it's guilty of Cinemania. I mean, whatever Cinemania actually is, I'm just trying to pick up from context clues because you guys won't fucking explain what Cinemania is. Anytime anyone tries to tell me, Andy just tells them to stop. And um, <clears throat> Moving on. Yeah, see? <laughs> Yeah, my point exactly. So, as much as I hate agreeing with all of you, yeah, I guess it's guilty. I'll just, I'll just go with the consensus here, and I declare this conclave adjourned. Is that right? Is that what I'm supposed to say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Good enough. Bang the thing. Okay. That episode of the Cinemania Society featured Andy Slack, Ethan Ireland, Daniel Scribner, Andrea Palladino, Zachariah Burks. Andre Luke Martinez and Hope Bravo. Written by Hope Bravo and Andy Slack. Story designed by Andy Slack. Produced by Ethan Ireland and Andy Slack. Mixed and mastered by Ethan Ireland. Graphic design by Andy Slack. Music by Carl Casey at White Bat Audio. Visit our website at thecinemaniasociety.podbean.com. Email us at thecinemaniasociety at gmail.com. And check out our social media feeds. We're on Twitter at TCS underscore Cinemania and Reddit at r slash the Cinemania Society. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review wherever you found us. Mention us on social media or find us on Ko-Fi to throw us a few bones. We love to make fun stuff for folks, but it isn't free. Anything and everything helps. The Cinemania Society will be creating pieces of video media, short films and the like. So stay tuned, Cinemaniacs. The Cinemania Society is a production of the Cinemania Society, LLC.